I read about a couple that were preparing for their day in the master bath of their home. This was right after Thanksgiving, and the husband promptly stepped on the bathroom scales to sort of assess the damage, you know. And uh, when he did so, he quickly sucked in his gut, and he held his breath. His wife said, that's not going to help. He said, I'm trying to read the numbers. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And I hope it was filled with good food and maybe some fun and some fellowship and family and friends and maybe even a little football thrown in around there as well. But it's time to get on with the celebration of Christmas, amen? It just is. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody has said to me in this last week, boy, Thanksgiving came so late this year. Did you hear that statement several times? And sort of, kind of, it did. But the church has for centuries now celebrated the Sunday closest to November the 30th. Some years that's in November. This year it's in December, December 1 of all things. The Sunday closest to November the 30th as the first Sunday of Advent. We'll say more about this in our service later on. But the word Advent simply means the coming of the Lord, the celebration of the coming of the Lord. And in some higher liturgical churches, it's done with a little bit more innate, uh, ornate ability. But uh, we can kind of get on with this as well, preparing our hearts for these four Sundays that lead up to the celebration of the birth of Christ. Now, now um, the church has, through the centuries, then also attached various themes to these days. They vary in various traditions, but, but themes like hope, you heard Matthew mention that already today, and themes like peace and joy and love as it gets closer and closer and closer. Well, let me tell you how that's going to work here at College Heights this year. We are beginning a study today in the Gospel of John. If you've been in Bible school, you already know that. We are studying the Gospel of John, and we'll do so through the Easter season. After the first of the year, it will kind of be like we normally do or often have done, and that is studying kind of a chapter of the Gospel of John per week as we get up to Easter. But in these particular four Sundays, there's five Sundays in this month of December, but in these four leading up to Christmas, we're going to develop one theme. And then as we go through the Gospel of John, there'll be some other themes as well as we kind of carve it up. But our theme for this particular emphasis this month is going to be this idea of new beginnings. New beginnings. Now that's what Christmas says to us. That's certainly what the new year says to us. New beginnings. Maybe some of you here today need a new beginning. And it's right for us to kind of use this season for that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend these four weeks, actually five, if you count the 29th of December as well, by looking at the prologue of the Gospel of John. That's the formal introduction of the Gospel of John. It covers 18 verses. So as you can see, five Sundays, 18 verses, we are going to exercise the discipline known as slowing, okay? We are going to slow down. We are going to kind of rattle every door and turn over every rock, and try to pay attention to these marvelous words. It's kind of like, you know, taking the long road home. You remember doing that when you were dating in high school? You took the long road home, right? That's kind of what we're going to do here, is we're going to just spend some time looking at this. And the first of those themes, new beginnings, this particular message is new beginnings need a disturbance. Need a disturbance. Let me get it rolling this way. 
There was a Methodist preacher years ago who also taught homiletics or preaching classes at Yale Divinity School in New Haven, Connecticut. His name was Halford Luckock. And Halford Luckock tells about a time during this time of the year when he entered into a department store. And as luck would have it, he literally, I mean physically, bumped into the department store Santa Claus. And the Santa just had his arms filled with packages. And when the two of them collided, packages went everywhere. Well, Dr. Luckhock felt bad. He started bending over, picking up packages, apologizing to the department store Santa. But jolly old Satan Nick just snapped. I don't know if he'd had too many kids sit on his lap that day or what. But anyway, he said, and I quote, I hate this time of year. It turns the whole world upside down. And it does, doesn't it? It does. When Jesus came, things got disturbed. Things got shaken up a bit. And this might seem like a funny theme to impose on these, but just think about these words with me today. Here's how the formal introduction of John begins. I will warn you as we start, John does Christmas differently. He's far more ethereal, he's far more spiritual. There's an early church father that said, John, having known that other gospels were produced, produced a spiritual gospel. Oh, I wonder what happened when John got to heaven and ran into Matthew and Luke. Hey, anyway, um, so a spiritual, John just does it different. There's no shepherds watching their flocks by night. There's no wise men coming from afar. There's no baby asleep in a manger in Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph standing by. John just does Christmas differently. And this is the way he does it. You can follow along in your Bibles. You can look at your devices. Or you can look at the screen. In the beginning. Oh my. We're going back a long way, aren't we? Does this sound like an ancient text to you? In the beginning. This, this sounds to me like we're going Beyond or back of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But this text says, in the beginning was, was, there already was something? In the beginning was the word, and, and the word was with God, and wow, here's a big statement. And the word was God. And as if we didn't get it the first time, he'll say it again, he, he, he who? Who he? Uh, he was in the beginning with God. Then quite an exclusive statement said in the positive and the negative. All things were created through him and without him nothing was made that has been made. Wow. Little words, small words. Would you agree? Ginormous ideas. Wow. Uh, another Methodist preacher by the name of J. Wallace Hamilton started out a sermon on this passage years ago this way. In the beginning was the word. And then he said, and there have been a million trillion since. That's true. Big words, little words, tall words, small words, fat words, skinny words, compound words, simple words, complex words, single, single syllable words. Words, words, so many words. But can you imagine a world of no more words? Oh, there might be people with a disability of deafness, but they have words, don't they? Sure they do. So, so words, what, 
Can you imagine Christmas without words? Can you imagine never being able to hear from the teller who takes your money, Merry Christmas? Can you imagine coming to church and not singing, Oh, come all ye faithful and hark the herald angels sing? We use words to do that. Can you imagine never hearing, Honey, come quick, the kids are here for Christmas? Words, words. John says that Christmas is really all about the word. So how can I frame this up for you today? Let me put it in a sentence, all right? This is what I came all the way from Carl Junction. We moved, okay? So it takes me longer to get to church now. But we moved. So, so I came all the way from Carl Junction just to tell you this today. Here it is. The word disturbed the silence and that disturbance brought us a new world. Did you catch that? See, before there was anything, there was... And when the word came in, the word disturbed all the silence. So the word disturbed the silence and that disturbance brought a new world. Would you say it with me? Say it with me. The word disturbed the silence and that disturbance brought a new world. It really, really did. In fact, I think we could, we could kind of maybe illustrate it this way. This is going to be kind of churchy. Can I just be a little churchy with you for a second? And um, scholars love to debate. Scholars use words to debate. And scholars love to debate topics like this. Which came first, the church or the Bible? Okay. Now, our Catholic friends would say, well, the church came first. And the church produced the Bible. Church people wrote the Bible. So the church produced the Bible. Therefore, the church can tell you what the Bible means. And that's partly true. Uh, Protestant friends would say, oh no, the Bible's what drives this. It's the word of God. No human can have that kind of authority. It's the Bible that comes first. It has priority. And there's a sense in which that's true. I'd like to suggest that both are wrong. I think our Catholic friends are wrong. I think our Protestant friends are wrong. Maybe not wrong, but not totally right. And this is what I'd say. I'll tell you what came first. The word. The word came first. And the word produced both the Bible and the church. And maybe we can unpack it a little bit as we look at these three verses. I just want to go slow, just verse by verse. So here's kind of an idea from verse one. The word that disturbed the silence was, it just was. You say, well, was what? Nothing, just was. The word that disturbed the silence was. We're dealing in verse one with the wasness of God. It says, in the beginning. So I assume we're talking about before creation as we know it. In the beginning was the word. And the verb tense of this word for was stresses the eternality idea. It stresses the continuing timeless existence of God. Before there was anything, there was the word. The word was already here. And that eternal aspect is stressed in the middle section when it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Actually, it means toward God, face to face with God, and then this stunning remark, and the word, in fact, was God. In the Net Bible, the New English translation, they say it this way, the word was fully God. Paul would write it this way in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created, 
Whether in heaven and earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or powers, all things were made through him and for him. So we're dealing here with the, the oldness of our faith. How old is our faith? How old is this Christmas story? How old is this story we believe? Well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's really old. That's how old. We, we, we have an old faith. God is not old-fashioned, okay? He is more contemporary than tomorrow morning's newspaper. He is not old-fashioned, but he's old. He's old. Uh, we were, like several of you, up at Kansas City recently for the International Conference on Missions, okay? And uh, seeing Dr. Wayne Shaw reminded me of something in my life. Once when I met for the very first time Dr. Fred Craddock, one of my mentors by way of his writings anyway, I went up to him and I said, I'm Mark Scott and I'm a disciple of Wayne Shaw, who I saw at Kansas City. He said, Wayne Shaw, he's older than God. <laughs> well, he's not older than God. But I did run into Wayne at the conference. I went over and hugged him like I usually do. He said, Mark, I've always thought of you as a son. I said, gee, thanks, Dad. Can I have 20 bucks? Anyway, so <laughs> while at the conference in Kansas City where some of the rest of you were, Miss Carla and I went to a workshop by Leonard Thompson. Some of you would know that name. Chennai, India, strategic world evangelism, expert on Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam, and teaches all over the world, has been our missionary on campus. He was actually the first missionary to live in the missions house at our campus. And we decided we hadn't talked to him since his wife Pamela had passed away. And we wanted to connect with Leonard. So we went to his workshop, and he gave his workshop on that particular occasion on Hinduism. And he rightly said, in tracing the origin of Hinduism, that it's older than Christianity. That's true. That's a flat fact. But Leonard quickly added, but it's not older than God. It doesn't go back behind the word. The word predates Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity. Before there was anything, when there was total silence, the word came in and disturbed the silence. See, to get well, you kind of have to have your silence disturbed. To become a new person, to be part of a new world, you kind of have to have your silence disturbed. So the first thing I'm wanting to say today is just that this word that disturbed the silence was. God always was. Let me, let me go to the second verse. The latter part of verse one and the second verse. I'd say it this way. The word that disturbed the silence was personal. It was personal. Did you notice it says, and he was God, and then it says, he was in the beginning. He, as I mentioned earlier, he who? Who he? Who are we talking about? There's this word, there's this thing, but now it has personality? Yes. Yes, it does. But lest the ladies in the room think that we're emphasizing masculinity, let me tell you something. I will tell you, we need to just state the obvious, that the Bible uses masculine pronouns to refer to Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the emphasis in this passage is not on masculinity, nor is it on femininity. What the Greek Bible says is not he. What the Greek Bible says is this one. This one was in the beginning with God. What's being emphasized? Personhood. The word is a person. The word is a person. It has viability as a human being and as something beyond that. Now, I, I don't want to get derailed by this, but this word was in special relationship with God, and so I suppose we ought to take a moment, a sidebar, to unpack what we mean by word. 
You've heard the Greek word, no doubt. I can't imagine you being in church very long and not having heard this word. Now, I'm going to pronounce it in the pristine way, the old way, although I suppose the newer way with your Bible software of logos is not wrong, per se. But I was taught it as lagos with the omicron, short O, lagos. What does it mean? I'm going to try to put the cookies on the low shelf as much as I can. Here we go. I think in the Greek world, they use this word, word, to refer to the divine, yes, they had deities in that world, the divine defining principle or thought or concept that permeated and ruled the world. Now, I know that sounds philosophical, stay with me. But, but really, they use this word to say there's something out there. There's something that pulls this together. There's some kind of thought or reason or concept or defining principle that somehow works itself into all the world. That's how the Greeks use this term. But when you start jumping into your Old Testament and you look at the Hebrew Bible and you put your yarmulke on for just a second and you think for like a Hebrew, you realize that's not how they use this word. They didn't talk about some concept flooding the universe. They talked about the word of the Lord, which was kind of a theological longhand phrase for God, because God is his word. His word is who he is. So it's talking about personhood and character and nature and even one of our former members, Paul Butler, said that what this means is the thought of God, the mind of God, the plan of God. And that was evident in the person of Jesus Christ. I can tell you this little bit, that your, the word logos appears 128 times in your New Testament. Since we're dealing with Christmas and the Gospels, Matthew and Mark never use it in its philosophical sense. They just use it to say Jesus said something or Jesus taught something. He just preached the word. That's how they use it. Luke, however, Luke, as he's writing the introduction to the book of Acts, refers to his first volume as logos. In the first book... Guess what the Greek word is? Lagos. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do to teach until the day he was taken up after he gave command by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke calls what he produced in volume one as Lagos, word. And for John, ay, 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 since we're in John, for John, it's, it's Jesus. That's how he does Christmas. The word is Jesus. And that's why the translators say, he, which really should be, this one was in the beginning with God. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God, I'm looking at image bearers right now. I'm looking at image bearers. So you were made in the image of God. I was made in the image of God. What does that mean? Oh my goodness, we could be here for hours. I mean, I guess it means we have the ability to think, the ability to reason, the ability to decide, a volition, a will, all those things are probably involved in the image of God. There might be a lot of stuff. But Virgil Warren, who taught at Manhattan Christian College for a number of years, he said that he thinks the primary idea of being made in the image of God is to have interpersonal capacity, to have relationships with people, and to be able to talk. No one else except human beings have that ability. And don't talk to me about your talking parrot. Please spare me, okay? But really, I mean, the, the human beings communicate and so when it says that he was in the beginning with God, it's dealing with his personhood. It's dealing with who he is. We have, a, we have a song that we sing at church occasionally. It's an old Irish tune, Be Thou My Vision. Remember it? Be Thou My Vision. The lyrics in the first stanza, Thou my best thought by, word, by day or by night. <laughs> now listen, 
God is more than a thought. He's a person. But he is your best thought by day and by night. And so John is trying to say, here's how we do Christmas. Christmas means this, that, that the word that disturbed the silence just was. It always was. The eternal God was. And then the eternal God was personal. He was with him in the beginning. And then one more thing. This word that shattered the silence, disturbed the silence, and was personal, was also creative. Did you notice how John states it in verse 3? He states it both positively, all things were created through him. And then he states it negatively, there was nothing made that has been made that he didn't make. So, so it's a very exclusive claim. And really the other, the other Bible passages get a hold of this, really they do. I could have mentioned these earlier, but for instance, uh, the passage in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, that's a personal kind of thing. Along with the creation idea, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 2, 9, Paul says that all of the fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus bodily or in bodily form. And way back there in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, this marvelous document that talks about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, here's how the prologue goes in verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word of power. And we see evidence of it in creation. Now I know that the current creation that you and I see is fallen. It's not totally redeemed yet. And so seeing God's hand in it is not easy for every scientist, okay? So when you look at the physical world, it's a world of beauty. And yet according to scripture, it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Someday, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth will pass away and there will be no longer any sea. And we'll see a holy city coming down out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That's someday, but even right now, I think you see the reality of verse 3, that the word that disturbed the silence was personal and creative. Let's just take for a minute North America, where we live. Let's just take this continent. I'm not going to speak to Mexico so much, but just think with me about Canada and the United States as part of it. What I'd like to do is just slice it in half, diagonally. So we'll start in the northwest and we'll move our way to the southeast. Just think with me for just a minute. Maybe some of you have been to Alaska in the vast expanse of Alaska and in the uh, provinces of Canada and Northwest Territory. And maybe you've seen the Northern Lights. Wow, I, I was told when I was a kid and we were in Northern Minnesota that we caught a little edge of them. I don't remember it to be real honest with you. But I'd love to see the beauty of the Northern Lights. Just keep moving south and east and you'll get to British Columbia to a place called Lake Louise or near Banff, and you will see the reflection of those glorious mountains in the lake itself. It is a beautiful place. Keep coming on to the southeast, and you will come to the northwest corner of Montana, where you will see Glacier National Park. It's not only a thing of beauty, it's a place where the scientists go crazy. And you just keep coming, and you'll get to the, mid, to the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. In fact, they got a lot more snow on them this last week. Were you glad to be a little farther south? Anyway, you weren't digging out today to come to church, but they have two feet of snow up there now and all those beautiful Rocky Mountains. 
And somehow you'll get over here to the Midwest and you get to Iowa and Illinois and Indiana and you might even get to parts of Missouri. Now, some of Missouri you have to farm with dynamite. But uh, there, are, there are pieces of ground up in Barton County and other places that'll grow corn like that. And the corn and the beans and the wheat, oh my goodness. The richness of the breadbasket of America. And you go a little farther to over East Tennessee and you will see the beauty of the great Smoky Mountains. In the morning, the mist that lies over them. In the evening, the fog that lies over them. Just, they're not like Rocky Mountains. They're kind of cozy little things. And they're good. And then you go down to Savannah, Georgia and you'll see the hanging moss of Savannah, Georgia on the trees. And there's a beauty with that. And finally, you'll get to the white sand beach of Daytona. And here's the thing about that. The thing about that is, as beautiful as those pictures are, they're not redeemed yet. He made them all. We tarnished them. And someday, when the elements burn with a fervent heat, he will remake this universe into something of glory. Because he is, by nature, creator from beginning to end. Um, some years ago, uh, Miss Carla and I, and actually our daughter Allie went with us, were doing mi grueling missionary work in Honolulu. Uh, you don't believe me, do you? I wouldn't either. Uh, the, and we were there at the Island Family Christian Church. It is a church that has 28 different ethnicities in it. On Sunday morning, it looks very much like heaven. It's awesome. But they did something in the service. I'm glad the preacher kind of warned me about this. Before I got up to preach, about six, seven gals came out in full-length gowns from, uh, you know, neck to, to uh, ankle. And they did a hula dance as part of the worship service. I was glad I was warned. Uh, to say it was moving would be an understatement, to be sure. But um, we didn't do much of that in Iowa where I grew up, okay? We just, uh, that wasn't done every Sunday. And I got to tell you, at first I thought, well, this is kind of odd. But it was done with such dignity and such propriety and such proper decorum that it was very worshipful. Oh, do you know the song they were dancing to? I can only imagine. Whew. But we don't get there until there's been a disturbance. God has to take the silence out there in the universe and say, let there be light. There was light. Somehow, to get Christmas, you've got to have a disturbance going on that'll bring this new world. Is that your story? That's probably my story, even though I grew up in the parsonage. And somehow, God's got to stir up your nest. God's got to do something to get your attention. God has to say, yeah, it's not going to get fixed unless we fix it right. I'm a lousy mechanic. I can change oil in a car. I can change spark plugs. But I can hardly work on cars anymore. They're so computerized. I used to do points and plugs and this and that. But I can't, Jason, I can't do it anymore. But uh, I know one thing from my daddy and from my brothers who are good mechanics. Sometimes you have to exaggerate a problem on a car to fix it. Like, like if you're working with brakes, you got brake pads, you got springs, you got calipers, and you got rotors. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, do you? I hardly know what I'm talking about. But I know this, that if that spring and that caliper doesn't work just right, it's not going to press those pads out and you're not going to stop. So here's the deal. 
My dad said, Mark, sometimes you have to exaggerate the problem when you're working on these to fix it. That's your story? Kind of God has to stir some stuff up in us before he can ever fix anything. And that's the message of Christmas. Do you think this was easy for Mary and Joseph? And in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. you think that was easy? And by the way, where does it say in the Bible that she rode a donkey down to Bethlehem? Find me that. She might have walked. Christmas is not easy. No, John's way of doing Christmas is saying that the silence that was out there, God had to shatter and disturb so that he could bring us the new world we so want. Can I take you as I close to one of my favorite spots on earth? It's the little Qumran community in Israel by the Dead Sea, just north of Masada. And let me show you a slide from this area. This is the famous cave number four. At the time, they thought it was cave number one. But in 1947, a little shepherd boy lost one of his sheep and he thought he got in that, that hole up on the top of that cave. So he took a rock and he fired it into the spook the sheep back out and he heard something crash. And he got down into that cave and he saw jar after jar after jar. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was made. Probably one of the 20th century's greatest archaeological finds, a whole Isaiah scroll. And, and beyond just cave number four, if you look up into the hills to the back, you'll see these next, in this next picture, that, those, those are holes in the cave. Those are just filled with manuscripts. And people have been working on them ever since 1947. They're still working on them today. And this community, you read not only about scriptures and copies of scriptures, but you had disciplines and orders and way to conduct your life and the way to live. These guys that lived in this little community where they copied the scriptures and they gave disciplines about how to live your life. You know what they did each day? Let me show you. They went through the ritual bath experience. They understood that to really be pure, to work with these manuscripts and to do what they, sometimes in their study, they'd be interrupted in their study. They'd be disturbed in their study and they'd get up and they'd go baptizo themselves. They'd go down into this ritual bath and come back out four, five, six times a day because of what they were handling. And they wanted to handle it with holy hands. And so God disturbed them so that they would come to a new transformation world. <laughs> so Thursday, after all the kids and family left, and Miss Carl and I are just kind of sitting in a dumb stupor staring at each other. Um, well, you want to go to the movie? Now, you know we're not big cinema people. You know, I fall asleep and drool. But I'd read a book about Fred Rogers years ago. And I was interested in this ordained minister who had a children's program. So we went. You could have exploded a bomb, not hit very many people. Because there's just a few in the theater, some folks that we knew. But it really wasn't so much about Fred Rogers, though Tom Hanks is an incredible actor. It was really more about a, the stage name was Lloyd Vogel. Lloyd Vogel was a journalist. He used words. And Lloyd Vogel is estranged from his dad. 
In fact, he got in a fight with him at his sister's wedding. They punched each other. And Mr. Rogers is doing therapy on Lloyd Vogel. And in his kind, gentle, loving way, he's stirring Lloyd Vogel's life up to bring him to a new world of forgiveness. Early in the film, and I don't want to wreck it for you, but early in the film, Lloyd Vogel has been given a journalist award and he stands to accept the reward and he says, you know, we journalists, we get a bad rap. We stir things up and we make people mad at us when we ask our penetrating questions. But we do so with the hope that using a word, using the right words, will make the world a little better place. And I leaned over to Miss Carla and said, don't let me forget that. I need that for Sunday. <laughs> now, frankly, both of us, given our age, by the time we got home, both of us had forgotten the line. <laughs> but I think that preaches. The belief that somehow a word would disturb the silence and uh, bring us a whole new world. I think it's called Christmas. Oh, Father in heaven, help us to hear your word, to hear Jesus, to start our celebration of Christmas with this word of hope, and in the midst of the silences of our hearts, speak hope, sing hope into our souls through Jesus. We pray in his name.